Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast, the show that features artists, entrepreneurs, experts, and commentators that will give you the right knowledge, planning, and guidance so you can preserve your assets and enjoy your wealth. Learn more and subscribe today at wealthactually.com. And now, here's your host, Fraser Rice. Welcome back to the Wealth Actually podcast. I'm Fraser Rice. John Fickthorn, now a two-time Wealth Actually interviewee, joins the podcast to discuss his new documentary, Gaming Wall Street. Directed by Tobias Demmel, the two-part documentary debuts on March 3rd on HBO Max. Gaming Wall Street chronicles the 2021 GameStop short squeeze that drew in the retail investor community and galvanized a movement against the traditional financial services industrial complex. It also underscores the complicated and often unfair nature of Wall Street. To add to the intrigue and character of the documentary, Succession star Kieran Culkin narrates the story. Welcome aboard, John. Ah, thanks. Thanks for having me. So you are part of an exclusive club. You are now one of, I believe it's three people who've been on Wealth Actually twice. All right. The twofers. The twofer club. It's, it's <laughs> going to be like the five-timers on Saturday Night Live, uh, you know, <laughs> an inglorious label at some point. <laughs> So the last time you were on, you had Betting on Zero, the big documentary on the Herbalife trade. And you have a new documentary out that covers GameStop and AMC and the Reddit trades. You did one documentary, and that is its own birth process. What got you excited about this one? I like helping people just generally in the world of finance. And I got a call from a guy who had seen Betting on Zero and had reached out to my partner, Burke, on email. And actually, a year later, Burke finally got back to him. And literally, I think it was maybe even longer. And Burke set up the phone call and said, hey, you should talk to this guy, Toby. He's, he's kind of doing something around GameStop. And GameStop was exploding at the moment. It's like February of last year. So I took the call. And Toby was like, hey, I'm making this doc. I assume Toby was calling to look for financing, right? That's kind of most of the reasons you get a call for a doc at some level. And he was really curious about what I knew about short selling because he kind of started this story about he got into investing and got into Wall Street bets fully independently and thought this would make a crazy doc because these people are really interesting subjects. Like they're full kind of funny irreverent retail guys who are getting involved in stocks, like I'm going to make this doc. And so he and Tessa, his partner, started making this doc in like December. And then GameStop happens in January and he starts hearing about this naked short selling and calls me, starts asking questions. And, you know, I spent a couple hours on the phone with Toby explaining, no, this is wrong. This doesn't happen. There is something over here you should look at. And, you know, maybe there's something here. And I don't know, I, there could be something here. And maybe I can help introduce you to some people. And so that went on. He'd call every couple of weeks for a while. And then he was like, hey, would you be in the doc? And I said, sure, sure, I'll help out with that. And then it went from, would you be in the doc to kind of, I had introduced him to all these people. And we together went down this rabbit hole that was not at all the movie he started making. And so it went from, Wall Street Bets and GameStop, which is what you'll see in episode one, to the underbelly and plumbing of Wall Street and short selling and stock loan desks and naked stock lending, more than naked stock selling, and excess leverage and you know, potentially the collapse of Wall Street. As you were sort of helping 
Toby chart the course here. He was starting out, what level of background did he have going into it? He saw sort of some interesting stories. Was he just starting from zero, basically, or had he had... He was starting from zero. Oh, wow. Like in in December of 20, I think November of 2020, he starts investing personally and is going to Wall Street Bets to learn about investing. So, I mean, standing start, right? Like he's got nothing. And then he's getting in the Wall Street Bets community, thinks this is really funny and cool and hey, I'll make a movie about it. And then by the time he's done about two months ago, I am having regular meetings with him and people who will remain unnamed in the prime brokerage community who build all kinds of technologies that help enable Wall Street, explaining to him exactly how DTCC works and how the various rules in the SEC work. And we're talking to plaintiff's attorneys for short selling. I mean, it was he went from zero to 100 to the point that I was learning a lot of stuff in a lot of these meetings as well very quickly. And, and he really dug in. He wasn't just making a movie. This guy was on a quest for truth. So who are the players? Let's maybe start with episode one. Who are the players in episode one that the documentary deals with? It's really the Wall Street Bets community. And it is kind of, you know, it's fascinating. It starts with, okay, here is this retail community that's really never been involved in stocks, who are now in stocks, not just for the reason typically people are in stocks, which is greed at the end of the day, but greed with a mission. Greed with a, I'm going to get back at the man and I'm pissed off at the man and I'm not sure who the man is, but he screwed me in 2008 and I'm going to screw him back. And this is my shot. We're all going to band together and we're going to get this guy. And that guy in their minds is Gabe Plotkin and Melvin. And so it really starts with retail investor base in Wall Street bets, which is really in many ways like it's a mob scene, right? They're just, they're furious and they've got one thing they're going to do and that's hold on to these stocks until they go to the moon. And when they do that, it's going to put this hedge fund out of business and whoever else, they don't care. So it starts there. That's really episode one with a little sprinkling of Robin Hood. And Robin Hood kind of is that bridge between episode one and episode two because they're the, they're the broker and they've got all their accounts. So episode one, in many ways, you sort of set up this the the trade in many ways on around GameStop and some of the players around it. And it sounds like the retail folks start discovering how the financial services industrial complex works. And that's what leads into episode two. They begin because who knows who's on Wall Street bets, right? There are some very sophisticated folks on there that could be using the rest of the mob. Who knows, right? The owners of Wall Street Bets has changed over time, but there are people in there posting real intelligent stuff. Granted, they use some inappropriate language when they do it sometimes, but it's, as I said, funny or reverent, but it's not stupid. And there are some conspiracy theories in there, but a lot of the conspiracy theories have some very real data inside of them. So some guys start posting, hey, Robinhood is out there and there's this payment for order flow thing that's run by Citadel. And you guys should all be aware that you're being used by them, the guys that you're using as a brokerage. And the guy you think is Robinhood, robbing from the rich and stealing from the poor might be kind of doing the opposite. And so that kind of leads them down this path of, okay, is there... And part of the whole thesis with GameStop is there are more shares short than there are shares outstanding. And that should be impossible. And if we all buy our shares and put them in a cash account or however we get them out of the lendable supply, the stock's going to go to the moon. 
and you can all never sell because you've got to have diamond hands. And if you do, we're going to ram this guy right out of existence. And that's their thesis. And that's their trade. That's the big trade. And that leads from Robin Hood to now Citadel, to short selling, to stock lending, to how is it that we're not able to squeeze these guys to what really happens in the plumbing of Wall Street in episode two. So then in episode two, and as I recall, you know, Robin Hood started putting restrictions on these stocks, the Reddit stocks, GameStop, AMC, et cetera. How close were we to something pretty systemic in terms of what was happening with these particular trades that could have bubbled over into something? I, I mean, I, I sort of look toward like long-term capital management as the idea of a trade that starts rippling. Super similar. Great analogy. And we were arguably closer. I mean, the reality is the options market is really run by two players, Citadel Securities and Susquehanna. Citadel has these hedge funds that everybody talks about. Oh, it's the hedge funds. But there's Citadel Securities, which is where Ken really deploys all his leverage and sells volatility. And they are Citadel backs Robinhood with payment for order flow. So they buy all of Robinhood's trades giving Robinhood cash to get a free look at the order flow, saying they'll give them the inside market of national best bid and offer. Whether the Robinhood clients are getting screwed or not is unknown. Payment for order flow is a system that it completely lacks in transparency. And so you can argue, oh, well, it's better than the national best bid and offer, but that's not the real market. There are 80 dark pools out there. We have no idea if they're giving them the inside market or not. They know, we just don't. So You've got Citadel Securities in there, and uh, they're deploying a tremendous amount of leverage on top of that. And then you've got Susquehanna, but Citadel is really all of Robinhood's options exposure also. So, so you know, you've got a situation where the entire options market is highly concentrated, massively leveraged. And think about what the Robinhood guys did, right? They were into buying lottery tickets, which is very non-traditional in terms of the way people play markets. Most people who buy options are like, oh, let me buy something that's at the money and pretty far out. You know, I want time. I'm trying to get some free leverage out of the options market. And maybe I think I have an edge in something. Oh, the, the Robinhood guys are like, this thing's going to the moon. So I want an option, but somewhere halfway between here and the moon. <laughs> and if it costs me 10 cents and it expires in three days, I don't care because it's going to the moon tomorrow. Now, the system wasn't built for that. So all of a sudden, Susquehanna, or sorry, Citadel Securities, who's on the other side of all these retail investors' trades, is selling these lottery ticket options all day, every day for a handful of days. And typically, when you do that, you hedge those as the stock approaches it, because stocks typically move in a relatively linear fashion. And historically, Citadel and Susquehanna would buy those lottery tickets in case there was a takeout event or something like that. So they're typically selling vol at the money and buying vol way out of the money as an insurance policy. All of a sudden, they're selling the insurance vol. And then think about what GameStop stock did. It goes 20, 50, 200, 500. That is a smoldering, not even smoldering, it's a flaming crater in the middle of their balance sheet. What happens next, and we can't draw the line of those are kind of factual statements that I just made. The next thing that happens is Robinhood and some other retail organizations cancel the ability to add to your positions. Position, close only. Now, 
I've only seen that once before in history, and that's when I was short all the banks in 2008. And all of a sudden, you were, it was illegal to short a bank. I could keep my position, but I couldn't add to it. And if I covered it, I could never put it back on again. And that was just for a short, right? Because they thought we were destroying the banking system. We like the five short sellers that exist on the planet. This was position close only. So shorts could only reduce. Longs could only reduce. So think about it. You're sitting there with a crater in your balance sheet. You're completely screwed. If the stock goes to 1,000, the amount of leverage you're going to take from 500 to 1,000 is going to put you under. Right. Then what happens if they go under? So what do you do? Ben Bernanke's on your board. I don't know. I'd make that phone call. Hey, you know, we'd be going under. (laughs) (laughs) Do something. Change the rules, right? That's what they did to me in the bank shorts, right? And so next thing you know, it's position close only. Well, you know the stock's never going up again if you can only sell it. That's right. (laughs) Right? So like, guess what? The stock went down. So you've got the Reddit investors who are new to this largely, you know, maybe you have some sophisticated ones in there who are seeing this and this is maybe their first exposure if they hadn't been involved in the financial crisis. And you've got people who are trying to stick their middle finger up at the financial services world. What was the dynamic there? I mean, they're seeing this and saying, oh my God, I'm being cheated. And they're already inflamed. They're now at full inferno level. What was the ramification on that front? It's not like Wall Street bets went away, right? They owned the stocks and who knows what really happened, just like who knows what really happened in the backdrop of when they went to position close only, right? It is, it is hearsay for sure. Who knows who really has diamond hands and who doesn't? If you had diamond hands, and there are certainly guys we film in the movie who bought the stock at the top, right? They made money for like one second. But a lot of those guys really embraced the opportunity in the market. And this is kind of where I kind of find hope in the whole situation is I hope that a lot of retail investors have realized, okay, you know, they call it lost porn in Wall Street bets, right? <laughs> yeah, I lost a ton of money. Hey, look how much money I lost today doing something stupid. That's the way we've all learned how to make money in the stock market. You learn how to make money by losing money and figuring out, I better not do that again. And a lot of these guys over the course of time have built their accounts. They have made money. They figured out how to average down, where they should own, where they should be buying stocks. Maybe they should or shouldn't have diamond hands. They don't give us their, their quote unquote trading strategies. But some of these guys are, are really sophisticated. They're building algorithms or software developers. Some of them are broke. Some of them have been broke. It's, uh, it's a really interesting group and not the group you would typically associate with a finance movie. And so part of the message that we're trying to get in this movie, part of the social impact is investor education. And we're actually rolling the movie out in conjunction with a group called bettermarkets.com, who's going to be launching some pretty interesting investor support uh, stuff over the next day or two. One of the guys is going to be on John Stewart in a couple of days. So, you know, there is, there is a goal here to try and help retail get better transparency, get better rights, understand where they're getting screwed and where they're not getting screwed. And that's really part of the objective. So one of the quotes that always reverberated with me, certainly back in trust company days, et cetera, was, you know, the market can remain rational a lot longer than you or irrational a lot longer than you can remain liquid. And, yeah, irrational. Yeah, no, not rational. Or maybe it was super rational if people were canceling Robinhood and saying, well, you know what, this isn't good, but it can remain irrational longer than you can remain liquid. Aside from that being kind of a, I think, a useful lesson, is that something that people take away from 
the Wall Street phenomenon we had here or it depends it depends who you ask, right? I've seen this happen. This being a Wall Street bet type short squeeze four times in my life. GameStop, Volkswagen, Learnout and Houseby, and there was at least another one back in the two thousand bubble. I, I'm gonna say Amazon since I had to live through it. All of those, even though Amazon is now today much higher than it was, the rest of them aren't. All of those situations destroyed, if not at the bare minimum decimated, maybe annihilated the short selling community at the time and materially changed behavior. I, we changed our behavior in our short fund with, with Volkswagen. It was changed prior to that in terms of position size limiting and all kinds of stop loss rules that we put in place so we wouldn't get killed. And so that lesson has to be beaten into a new community of investors once every cycle. And this is, this is that. And so if you ask any of the short funds or short bias funds or guys who had real short books uh, who are no longer in business about that quote, they'll be like, yeah, yeah, that ruined me, right? I get it, <laughs> right? And yet maybe that was on the way up, on the way down. Who knows what the Wall Street Bets community believes? Certainly many of them who are vocal today still think that there's this moment in time where GameStop's still going to go to a zillion. They still think that there's a ton of short interest, even though it's no longer being reported. They think the fraud is that deep. They still don't trust the capital markets to the point that they believe the data that they're being shown. Maybe they think the market's being irrational because GameStop's you know, only at 100 and change instead of at 1,000 where they think it should be, that having nothing to do with the fundamental underpinnings. And you know, I think there's a realization that I've had lately that value is very much determined by perception and is held in the minds of humans more than maybe I gave it credit for in my Graham and Dodd studying days back in the 90s in that, what is Bitcoin worth? And, and that has highlighted this, you know, it's worth what, what society, what the social market thinks it's worth. And right now it thinks it's worth 43,000 and great, good for it. Who am I to dispute that? That is what the market prices it at. And so, you know, I don't think we fundamental analysts of the world who really love to, to ride our fundamental ratios horses around and and hold the moral high ground on why we're smarter than everybody else. I don't think we give enough credit to what we consider to be irrationality, which is just frankly the way social sometimes it looks like mass hysteria, sometimes it lasts much longer than that, which is where I throw bitcoin, right? But that's me and everybody now thinks I'm probably a bitcoin hater and is going to shoot me with their laser eyes. So <laughs> Well, you know, perception and narrative, especially with social media and the way people obtain their news about stocks and bonds and, and how much that dominates their lives these days, it's markedly more than it used to be 5, 10, 20 years ago. And, and if you control the narrative, that changes the y-axis on how you value these things, uh, it seems it does. like. It does. Social media, this is our first social media war that we're having with the Ukraine. And it's our first social media bubble that we've had with GameStop. And it was truly something that couldn't have happened without social media. It wouldn't have ever, the Wall Street Journal and Financial Times and other media outlets of, you know, the bygone era could have never made GameStop do this. Uh, This is something that was really alive in many ways. To get back to the crypto analogy for a second, you know, you talk about the the Wall Street bets crowd. The thing that sort of always, I don't know if it concerns me or it's just a phenomenon that I don't understand is with the decentralization and anonymity of how Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies are held. And I think a general lack of understanding of how the pipes work around the system. Do you see parallels where in that crypto world, we could see the same types of 
short squeezes and or market phenomena that just are misunderstood by the investing public that are enticed by Bitcoin? You're never going to see a short squeeze because you can't be shorted, right? Other than the futures market, which really argues we should have individual equity futures because that way it's just a guy against another guy, right? That's what a future is. And you ultimately, it's, it's kind of like, I bet you five bucks that this one's going up in six months. And you're like, fine, I'll take it. There's no real transfer of the ownership or the beneficial ownership of an asset. And, and so you're, you're never going to have that, but the effect is the same. And I would argue that some of the most astounding manipulations I've lived through don't even include GameStop in the equity markets. They include, to a large degree, Chinese securities that were listed in the States that really, I think, mastered the art of liquidity management. And so they, a lot of the Chinese stocks that I would look at that were the biggest frauds that were disclosed that ultimately declined, and this is true, it, not just in the Chinese stocks, but some US stocks, are where they really lock up a huge percentage of the outstanding issued shares or float. And it's the same game that the Wolf of Wall Street played, right? He called them rat holes, if you read his book, right? And he buries shares in dead people's accounts so they couldn't trade them, obviously, because they were dead. Controlling that liquidity gives what I call the effective market cap a much smaller number because there are just a lot fewer shares that are actually out there. And so now it's easier to manipulate. And so I've seen that very first-handedly in the stock market take place I guess secondhandedly, but I've observed it on a first-hand basis and calculated it. And I think that happens to a much greater degree in crypto because you have the entire cap table really controlled by one group at the beginning when they issue and do their ICO and issue their coins. And they really issue them all to their friends. And these things are absolutely consortium driven. I know a couple of the groups that are doing it. They operate in other countries primarily or at least other territories in the US. And, you know, they make sure they control the entire float and then it's easy to run. And then they go out and they do use social media because modern younger investors like to crowdsource their data. And so these guys go out there and really affect because they start with a consortium controlling that float. They control the message. They run the effective price of these things and then they slowly bleed the liquidity into the market and, and take advantage of it. So I think it's, it's very similar with some different terms and maybe some different dynamics involved, some different plumbing. Getting back to the documentary, who was the most interesting character you ran across uh, while it was getting made? There were a number. We go on a bear hunt at one point, which is kind of ironic and, and certainly was entertaining with one of the, the largest plaintiff's attorney for going after illegal stock loans. And he and I had never met. He's in the movie a fair bit. His name's Wes Christian. And uh, he was nervous going to effectively a cabin in the woods with me and carrying big guns around and, and shooting bear. We actually didn't. Well, I won't ruin it, but uh, we, we, did see, we did see a couple bear and they were, they were very cute and didn't perish. But uh, he, it was fascinating because we had some conversations where I was really short of stock that he was also claiming was full of illegal stock loans. And, and this conversation doesn't even happen on camera. We had this realization that, huh, okay, you can be right. And yeah, this was a super hard to borrow, but I, as the short seller, fully believed that I had a fully legal short. I had located every single share that I was short. I was paying out the nose to be shorted to the prime brokers. And yet he's sitting there on the other side saying, yeah, but the prime brokers didn't even have that stock to lend you. This was a fail to deliver into the market a hundred days in a row. You never actually got those shares. 
And he had the realization that actually I should be one of his clients because I'm getting charged 50% a year to borrow a stock that I don't actually have. (laughs) And I should be suing the prime broker with him. And he had the realization that I'm not the bad guy, that I really go into this thinking I'm doing my job. And I would, and this company was a fraud and the CEO ultimately did get fired and, and it served time. And so like I was right, I was doing the market a service. He was right. Cause the way the system was working, it's not working. It's not what we think it is. I actually believed I had those shares and was short them into the market. And he's telling me you weren't. And so on a personal level, it, it was it was a fascinating guy to meet, and and it was just one of those things that I didn't expect. Right? We start making this movie. I, you know, I'm kind of helping a guy out, and next thing I know, I'm learning a lot about how the system works. Kieran Culkin is the narrator in the movie and does the voiceover work. Uh, how did you get him involved? You know, that was all Toby on the other side. So this ended up being very much a joint venture. Toby and Tessa uh, and Prodigium uh, made really made the movie. I really helped steer the research process. Wait, where is this? Where should we turn in this rabbit hole that we're going down that's interesting and, and will provide us all kind of the truth that we're looking for? And Burke helped coordinate everything, including the story and, and the editing and everything else in the background. So it really was a team effort. And that was that was really Toby that, that helped put that together. At least in the trailer that I've seen, it, it, it adds something with his role in succession. It really, it, it's uh, a nice little, little patina uh, that you add to it. That It is. It's a great it's a great feature. Great feature. The whole effort, just as a side note, was like, it was super global in nature. I mean, after HBO bought the movie, they basically said, yeah, we're going to buy the movie. And yeah, we'd like it done in three months. And it was like, I'm sorry, what? Yep. Like, we're still, we're still shooting it. What do you mean? Maybe it was six months, whatever it was. It was not very many months. You know, Toby and, and Tessa put together a team from around the world. I mean, there were 80, we, he had the Zoom call with all 80 people. And it was like, go around and tell everybody something about yourself. And there was a team from Ukraine and a team from Russia. And so it was like, you know, there were teams from all over the world, Australia, New Zealand, California, New York, you name it, uh, involved in this thing to kind of get it done on time. It was totally fascinating and interesting to watch. Well, and as you've now done twice. I mean, these are like pulling off D-Day invasions where you've got, you know, you're, you've got Omaha Beach <laughs> right. over here and Juneau over there and people getting parachuted in to try to fix things. It's crazy. And you really don't know what it's going to end up as. I mean, it really is fascinating to see this kind of creative process as well as this military deployment, to use your analogy, kind of culminate in this thing that you sit down and watch for entertainment value. I mean, it really, it's, I've really come to appreciate and enjoy the process of doing it. And wasn't ever sure we'd do another one after betting on zero, frankly. And now I think we're going to be doing be doing a number of uh, additional ones in the future. So before we sign off here, what are your thoughts on the media's obligation or the regulatory world's obligation to have tighter controls over these things? And and are they just always the media is sort of a I guess it's a big that's a big question in and of itself. But they 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 need to generate eyeballs, et cetera. They need sensationalism. These types of stories are great for them, but it doesn't really speak well to their stewardship of the financial services world and the markets when things get out of control. How do you view that? The media is never going to understand what we're talking about, right? The number of times I have had to explain how does short selling work to somebody, and I never really get all the, like, I don't get, I, I, I describe the leaf. I don't even get to the trunk, much less the roots, much less like at a cellular level, how it works. Right. And so it's just too complicated for, for media to talk about. It goes to, in many instances, in my opinion, 
there's so many things in our society that we don't seem to learn that are integral to our society, starting with like, why do my kids in school not learn about a mortgage? Why do they not learn about the financial system? Why do they not learn about a cap structure? Like this should be taught right there with algebra. And instead it's just completely neglected and you expect to learn it on a 15 second soundbite on CNBC. Like it's, it's not going to happen. We don't even have enough people who watch CNBC. So the media is not going to figure it out. And so we've kind of said, oh, let's just leave this to the regulators. So great. You got an SEC. These people don't come out of industry, right? They're like, this is super complicated stuff, which is why it's so easy for Wall Street to beat the regulator, right? But the regulator has slowly, the SEC has slowly been surrounding the sell side and shrinking their freedom to operate and freedom to not disclose and other things over a number of years. Now, I believe that Gensler is actually kind of onto it. And he's proposed a number of rules that would actually completely fix the problems that we identify in this movie, if enacted. I doubt they'll be enacted, right? There's an absolute crap load of lobbying power going on right now, making sure. And I know this because when we hired a lobbyist to stop the Chinese companies from listing in the U.S. because they didn't live up to our PCAOB auditing rules, and one, it still was overturned in the SEC's own court at the last second, and they got a $2 million fine. Now, it ends up getting reenacted now four years later, but you know, I just saw the power of Alibaba going public, the power of these prime brokers and the amount of profits that these prime brokerages generate aren't going to let Gary Gensler get away with, you need to report the actual locates of the securities you borrow every 15 minutes, as he's proposed. We as a society have given that responsibility to the SEC and the alternative system, certainly I'm a believer in, but it causes a lot of pain, is one where there's a full free market and it's buyer beware and there's full transparency. And I think everybody should be able to take as much risk as they want, as long as they're fully cognizant of the risk that they're taking. The problem today is there's not full transparency. So my system can never come into existence because you can read 384 pages of a 10K of Goldman Sachs, and you're still not going to understand what the heck is really going on inside how they manage these securities. And, And one of the most shocking things that I experienced during this movie was this moment where I, I'm sitting there and I said to a guy, he's not in the movie, but this was, we did a tremendous number of background interviews. And I said to a guy and who I've known forever, so are you saying that when I look at my brokerage statement, what I see isn't necessarily true? And he said, oh, t- definitely not. It's, <laughs> almost, it's almost definitionally not true. And I said, I don't, I don't understand. Right. What do you mean? And he's like, well, you know, your securities are, are generally kind of amalgamated in some pool. And unless you have them all segregated, and even if you do have them all segregated, it's still possible for the institution to lend out shares to meet an oblig- another obligation that they have because somebody else has shorted the stock and you've got them. And you say, well, I, I, I said I'm not lending them. And they lend them anyway. They can plug that hole under SEC rules by just sticking some cash or assets in a reserve account under 15-3-3 or something to that effect. And I'm like, wow, really? That's, that's one of those things you can get away with forever until the system freezes. And you're like, wait, my stock wasn't in there? I thought my stock was in there. Well, that, that happened in 2008. Back in my trust company days, we would have people calling up. Lehman Brothers is failing and people are understanding, wait a second, I, my account says XYZ for the benefit of 
I don't actually have ownership of the securities that I have. They're all hypothecated. And so then that got back to, hey, wait, trust companies, you know, you have an account opened up and it, the, the securities are in your name. And that may not solve your problem completely, but you are at least one level of abstraction closer to ownership than you were in kind of that brokerage world. Yeah. No, look, beneficial ownership is the rule that one of the guys in the movie is obsessed with, has based his entire career on. And getting, you know, the SEC has rules that aren't necessarily clearly enforced to say who is the beneficial owner. I mean, you know, there's another kind of shocking thing that I learned, which is if you think about it, there are 100 shares outstanding, 50 people short those shares, 50 more people buy them. 25 of those people short those shares, 25 people buy them. All of a sudden, I've got 125 owners of a share where I've only issued 100 shares. And now it gets time for the election of directors. I have 125 votes, but there are only 100 shares outstanding. Huh. Can you have overvoting? There's an overvoting problem. The only reason it's not a bigger problem is because there's such apathy about voting your shares, right? So you have a real, a real retailly held stock. A lot of the people don't vote. But there is an entire system set up deal with effectively creating a pro rata voting system. So your vote isn't a vote, which I think is kind of a problem. No, in a sense, I mean, not to spill over into politics, but you've got a hyper gerrymandered situation with these companies. So as you say, you know, in a sense, one vote is maybe equal to two. And then the person who thought they had a vote, their vote's really worth 0.5. If you think about the case of GameStop, right, there were whatever, 100 shares outstanding for the sake of the analogy, there were 120 shares short which means there was really 220 shares outstanding, which that doesn't really work. Now, you know, the system kind of fixes itself and has come up with ways to fix itself around these moments in time where you must have a beneficial owner for each share of stock. But the reality is, it, the parallels, I always find it fascinating, the parallels in the market to the parallels in society, right? The lack of trust in the market, the last of, lack of trust in our news media, the, the, the voting problems in society, the voting problems in the stock market. Like the market is another form of communications in many ways, right? And it's just an argument that creates a truth that is the stock price, I would argue. And so we have similar problems in both areas, right? And it's going to be a challenge for us as a society to fix it. Really cool stuff. Okay, Gaming Wall Street. How do people see it? Where, when does it come out? HBO Max. It drops tomorrow. I think if tomorrow's Thursday, which I think it is, uh, and it's a two-part episode. And yeah, there you go. HBO Max, March 3rd drop, Gaming Wall Street. John Ficknorn, thank you very much for being on. Pleasure is mine, as always. Great talking to you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Wealth Actually, hosted by Fraser Rice, author of the book Wealth Actually and a leading private wealth manager. Head on over to WealthActually.com where you can subscribe to this podcast, get your own copy of the Wealth Actually book, and connect with Fraser directly. We'll see you next time on Wealth Actually. Wealth Actually.